Hey, future doctors. Thanks for joining me on Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Rhea Mulherker. I'm currently a medicine intern in Philadelphia, and I will be your host today. Welcome back, guys, and thank you for choosing Spoonful of Sugar as your medical review podcast. Um, If you are anything like me and you have a hard time keeping track of all the vitamins and minerals, what they do, what happens if we're deficient or if those vitamins are excess in our system, then today's episode is going to be a perfect review for you. A lot of times the vitamins and minerals that we're going to talk about are important cofactors or coenzymes in key biochemical reactions. And if you think back to the specific pathway in which they're involved, you'll actually get an excellent review of some biochemistry as well. Vitamins and minerals are a key topic on any kind of nutrition exam, and they do show up often on the boards uh, just because they are so widely used, and it's such a great way to transition from the chemistry and the actual biochemical pathway to clinical application and treatment even. So with no further ado, let us get started and talk about the vitamins. I'd like to just start by asking you, what are the fat-soluble vitamins? There's four of them, and they are vitamins A, D, E, and K. Do you guys know where the fat-soluble vitamins are absorbed? So they're actually absorbed in the ileum, and we need help from our pancreatic enzymes to kind of digest fats and get the fat-soluble vitamins absorbed in the ileum. When do we see malabsorption of the fat-soluble vitamins? Anytime you have steatorrhea, so steatorrhea is basically diarrhea caused by fat malabsorption, and so obviously when you're not absorbing fat, you're not going to absorb the fat-soluble vitamins. So you can see steatorrhea in patients with cystic fibrosis uh, as well as celiac disease, and this can lead to deficiency of the fat-soluble vitamins. And interestingly, toxicities are actually more common in fat-soluble vitamins as well because these can tend to accumulate in the fat. Now, how about water-soluble vitamins? What are the water-soluble vitamins? So pretty much everything else. Think of all the B vitamins, and there's a lot of different B vitamins, as well as vitamin C. Now, most of the water-soluble vitamins are actually going to wash out pretty fast, but there are two of them that are actually stored in the body for longer periods of time. Do you know what those two are? So vitamin B12 or cobalamin is actually stored the longest. It's stored in the liver and it stays there for three to four years. The other one is folate or vitamin B9, and that is stored only for three to four months. So B9 is on the order of months, B12 on the order of years, and they are both stored in the liver. Now let's go deeper into the fat-soluble vitamins and talk about each one separately. So let us start with vitamin A, also known as retinol. What's the normal function of vitamin A? So it's actually found in the visual pigments that are in the retina, and it also helps with the differentiation of epithelial cells into specialized tissue, like mucus-producing cells, and it can actually help prevent against squamous metaplasia. Where in our diets do we get vitamin A? It's found in the liver as well as leafy vegetables. So if you eat animal liver, you'll get vitamin A as well as leafy vegetables. And then 
Is vitamin A used to treat anything? Yeah, absolutely. Um, vitamin A actually is used in measles to prevent long-term complications of measles. It's also used in acute promyelocytic leukemia, and it's also used in the treatment of acne. Retin-A is used in the treatment of acne. What happens if we have a vitamin A deficiency? So as I said, it's used in visual pigments. And so without vitamin A, we can get night blindness. We can get blind spots, can also cause corneal degeneration. And because it helps prevent squamous metaplasia um, and it helps with epithelial cells, think about that function. It can also cause dry skin. And then finally, it can cause immunosuppression. And then what happens in vitamin A toxicity if we have an excess of vitamin A? So acutely, it can cause nausea, vomiting, blurry vision, vertigo. More chronically, it can cause hair loss, dry skin, hepatic toxicity, hepatic enlargement, um, arthralgias, and it can also cause pseudotumor cerebri. And then a very important thing to remember is that vitamin A is teratogenic. So whenever patients are getting treated for acne, oftentimes these are teenage teenagers um, who are menstruating. And for teenage women who are menstruating, if they are on vitamin A for acne treatment, they will need a negative pregnancy test. And they also usually have to be on birth control uh, while they're getting vitamin A treatment because it is so teratogenic. Let us move on to talking about vitamin D. Where does vitamin D come from? So a, a few different places. The number one source of vitamin D is our skin being exposed to the sun. Um, and the form of vitamin D that we get is D3 or cholecalciferol. Cholecalciferol also comes from ingestion of foods such as fish, milk, and plants. And then ingestion of more like the fungi and yeasts is where you get the other form of vitamin D, which is D2 or ergocalciferol. But remember, the major form is D3, and that comes from the skin being exposed to the sun. Once we get D3 from in, into our skin, the liver is actually going to convert it to 25-hydroxycholecalciferol. And then from there, it goes to the kidney, where it is converted to the active form of calcitriol. What is the normal function of vitamin D? So vitamin D kind of interacts with PTH and it ends up increasing the absorption of calcium as well as phosphate. And it also increases PTH production. At the level of the bone, low levels of vitamin D are actually gonna increase bone mineralization and higher levels will end up decreasing bone mineralization. And then what do we see in vitamin D deficiency? Think about what happens in children and think about what happens in adults. So vitamin D deficiency in children is going to cause rickets. Um, it causes problems with bone formation. These children are bow-legged. In adults, it also causes bone problems, but adult bones have already developed. So adults are going to have a condition called osteomalacia, where they have bone pain and they have muscle weakness. Now, it's important to note that we give oral vitamin D to children who are breastfed because breast milk doesn't carry vitamin D in it. And then what do you think happens in individuals who have darker pigmented skin? 
I'm asking because vitamin D is absorbed in the skin when skin is exposed to sun. What happens in darker pigmented individuals? So these individuals are actually at a higher risk for vitamin D deficiency. And then what happens in vitamin D toxicity? Like if you have an excess of vitamin D, what would you expect to see? So hypercalcemia, absolutely, because vitamin D increases absorption of that. So you see hypercalcemia as well as hypercalciuria. Um, these patients will have decreased appetite as well as stupor. And these are some of the things that are associated with hypercalcemia. And when do we see vitamin D excess? There's kind of a special circumstance that I'm thinking about. So in granulomatous diseases, such as sarcoidosis, you'll actually get elevated levels of calcium, and that comes from activation of vitamin D by special epithelioid macrophages. Now, let's talk about vitamin E. Vitamin E is also known as tocopherol or tocotrienol. Where do we get vitamin E? Vitamin E comes from more interesting sources, so sunflower oil, corn oil, and then some meats, fruits, and vegetables. What is the normal function of vitamin E? So it usually acts as an antioxidant, and it actually protects red blood cells as well as their membranes from free radical damage. What happens in vitamin E deficiency? So patients will actually present with muscle weakness. Uh, they can get demyelination of their posterior column and spinocerebellar tract. And if you're familiar with B12, this is kind of similar to B12 deficiency. The only difference is in vitamin E deficiency, we don't get megaloblastic anemia or hypersegmented neutrophils as we do with B12 deficiency. And we'll talk about that further. Um, the other thing with vitamin E deficiency is that it can cause hemolytic anemia as well as acanthocytosis. Now, what happens if vitamin E is in excess? Are there any toxicities? The answer is yes. Um, in infants, there can be a risk of enterocolitis. And then, interestingly, high doses of supplementation with vitamin E can actually alter the metabolism of vitamin K and end up enhancing the anticoagulant effects of warfarin. So basically, vitamin E interferes with vitamin K production. And if a patient's already on warfarin, then you, as you know, we're inhibiting their vitamin K reduction. And that can actually enhance the anticoagulant effects of warfarin. That then brings us to vitamin K. And what is the normal function of vitamin K? So... Vitamin K in the liver is reduced by vitamin K epoxide reductase, and the reduced form of vitamin K actually acts as a cofactor in the synthesis of different clotting factors. Do you guys remember what these clotting factors are? So vitamin K is needed to produce clotting factors 2, 7, 9, and 10, and it's also used to produce the anti-clotting factors, protein C and protein S. What happens if vitamin K is deficient? So this is really important, especially in, in newborns. Vitamin K deficiency can actually cause neonatal hemorrhage. And so actually all newborns at birth in the hospital are usually given a vitamin K injection to prevent neonatal hemorrhage from happening. 
And so that wraps up our talk on the fat-soluble vitamins. And let's move on now to the water-soluble vitamins, starting with all the B vitamins. And I would like to start with vitamin B12, cobalamin, just because it's one of the more involved ones. Um, And we'll go from there. So vitamin B12, also known as cobalamin, comes from where? Where do you think we get vitamin B12? It usually comes from animal products. And the absorption of B12 is important to remember. So what happens is in the duodenum, B12 is going to bind our own intrinsic factor. And then after it binds intrinsic factor, it's going to continue to travel down and it actually ends up getting absorbed in the ileum. From there, vitamin B12 is stored in the liver for how long? About three to four years. So it's stored for a long period of time. And what is the normal function of vitamin B12? So B12 actually is going to act as a cofactor for a lot of enzymes in DNA synthesis, such as methionine synthase, methylmalonyl-CoA mutase. Just remember, it's a cofactor for DNA synthesis. So what happens if we get a deficiency in vitamin B12? Well, you can't make your DNA properly, and so you end up getting problems with your, with your blood cells. So hematologic problems are going to be macrocytic megaloblastic anemia. So the mean corpuscular volume is going to be over 110 for these cells. You're also going to get hypersegmented neutrophils. And the way I remember these effects is basically the red blood cells and neutrophils are not properly making their DNA, and so all the precursors just end up accumulating more and the cells are bigger. So they're macrocytic megaloblastic anemia and you get hypersegmented neutrophils. And then with B12 deficiency, there are also neurologic problems. So these patients can get paresthesias and they actually get develop a condition called subacute combined degeneration. Subacute combined degeneration is a problem with abnormal myelination and they end up getting problems with their dorsal columns, lateral corticospinal tracts, as well as spinocerebellar tracts. And it's all because, because of the B12 deficiency, they can't make normal myelin and that affects all of their tracts. When do we see B12 deficiency? Like what would cause B12 deficiency? So remember I talked about the mechanism of absorption. If patients do not have intrinsic factor, then they're not going to be able to bind vitamin B12 and absorb it in their ileum. And what would cause a lack of intrinsic factor? If patients have gastric bypass surgery, they're not going to make intrinsic factor in the stomach. And then the other condition is something called pernicious anemia, where patients actually develop antibodies against their own intrinsic factor. Also, you can get um, B12 deficiency if you don't have an ileum, because that's where B12 is absorbed. So for example, if patient with Crohn's disease had that part of their small intestine resected, then they wouldn't have an ileum and they would have B12 deficiency. And the other condition is veganism because, again, B12 comes from animal products and vegans don't eat a lot of animal products. The thing with veganism is that short-term veganism is not going to cause B12 deficiency. Why is that? It's because B12, as I said earlier, is stored in the liver for three to four years. So if a person is vegan for six months, they're still going to have enough B12 in their stores 
um, and they're not going to develop deficiency. But if a patient is vegan for many, many years, then you can start thinking about that as a cause. And do you guys remember, just to circle back to pernicious anemia, how do we diagnose pernicious anemia? So traditionally, we used to use something called the Schilling test. Um, I'm not really going to get in the details of that, though, because nowadays we just test for antibodies against intrinsic factor. So we just check levels of anti-intrinsic factor antibodies. Now, B12 deficiency can be a little bit confusing because the hematologic effects are very similar to folate deficiency, and then the neurologic effects are very similar to vitamin E deficiency. The thing with the hematologic effects is that patients who are given folate, so folate supplementation, can actually mask the hematologic symptoms of B12 deficiency, but it's not going to affect the neurologic symptoms. But it's confusing because sometimes if we give patients folate, we might fix their macrocytic anemia and it might mask a B12 deficiency. Do you guys know a lab test that we can order to distinguish between B12 and folate deficiency? So in B12 deficiency, we're actually going to get increased levels of something called methylmalonic acid or MMA. And that is because B12 is a cofactor in the reaction that breaks down methylmalonic acid. So if, you want, if you're confused if a patient has B12 or folate deficiency, you can check an MMA level or methylmalonic acid. And in B12 deficiency, it's going to be high. Since we're pretty much right on the topic, let's just jump to folate and talk about folate or B9. How do we get folate? So think folate is found in foliage, so fruits, leafy greens. It's going to get absorbed in the jejunum. And do we store folate in our bodies? If so, where and for how long? So absolutely, we store it and we have a small reserve in the liver, three to four months. So not quite as much as B12, but it's there for a couple of months. What's the normal function of vitamin B9 or folate? So folate is actually going to use vitamin B12 as a cofactor to convert itself to tetrahydrofolate. And then tetrahydrofolate is then used as a cofactor in methylation reactions that occur in DNA and RNA synthesis. So just like B12, folate is also responsible for helping out with DNA and RNA synthesis. And so what happens if we get a deficiency of folate? And fun fact, folate deficiency is actually the most common vitamin deficiency in the United States. What happens if we get a deficiency of it? So same thing as B12 deficiency, because it's involved in DNA and RNA synthesis. If we're deficient in folate, we're going to get macrocytic megaloblastic anemia. So the MCV is going to be over 110. And we're also going to get hypersegmented neutrophils. What we're not going to see in folate deficiency, however, is the subacute combined degeneration of the spinal tracts. Folate deficiency also gives us glossitis. And what kind of patients will get folate deficiency? Do you know like who we would expect to see it in? It's seen often in alcoholism as well as pregnancy. And then there's a few drugs that can cause folate deficiency. So phenytoin, sulfonamides, methotrexate, if patients are taking methotrexate um, for rheumatoid arthritis, for example, we're going to give them supplementation with folic acid. 
And then how do we distinguish B12 from folate deficiency? Because remember, folate supplementation can sometimes mask a B12 deficiency. It'll fix the anemia in B12, but not the neurologic symptoms. So how do we distinguish B12 versus folate? What lab do we check? So we actually check the methylmalonic acid levels. And what are methylmalonic acid levels? Like what do we expect them to be in a person with folate deficiency? They'll actually be normal. Whereas in B12 deficiency, methylmalonic acid levels would be high. Okay, so normal in folate deficiency and high in B12 deficiency. And then when do we give folate? We actually use folate pretty often, like we give it. When do we give it? We definitely give it to pregnant women. So we try to give it for the entirety of pregnancy. And do you guys know why we give folate to pregnant women? It decreases the risk of neural tube defects. So folate deficiency in pregnancy can cause neural tube defects in the infant. And so we give folate to prevent that from happening. And then we also give folate if we're giving a medication that can cause deficiency. So like I said earlier, methotrexate, we would supplement with folic acid. Let's move on now. I know we talked a lot. We focused a lot on B12 and folate just because they're pretty involved. We'll try to get through some of these other vitamins a little bit faster. Let's move on to talk about thiamine or vitamin B1. What happens if we have a B1 deficiency? So without thiamine, we have impaired glucose breakdown, and that actually ends up depleting our ATP supplies. So the first organ that's going to be affected by that is any organ that's highly aerobic, such as, can you think of an example? The brain. And so a lot of times we're going to see thiamine deficiency in patients who are malnourished, as well as patients who are alcoholics. And are you familiar with a particular syndrome that can be seen in alcoholics with thiamine deficiency? So there's something called Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome. Um, it presents with confusion, ophthalmoplegia, ataxia. That's kind of the Wernicke part. And then Korsakoff is confabulation, changes in personality, and loss of memory. And really, all of this occurs because of damage of a particular structure. Do you guys know what that structure is? So it's going to be the medial nucleus of the thalamus and the mammillary bodies. And so how do we treat alcoholics? Whenever alcoholics come into the ER, we usually give them two things, um, but the order kind of matters. This might be a little bit of a read my mind question, but you're going to want to give these patients thiamine as well as dextrose, but it's really important to give thiamine before dextrose. And that is because if they're given dextrose, but they don't have the thiamine, they're not going to be able to break down glucose anyway. And that can actually precipitate Wernicke's encephalopathy. So in alcoholics, you want to give thiamine before dextrose. And then there's a couple other things. So B1 deficiency can be associated with something called beriberi. And there's two forms. So do you guys know what dry beriberi presents with? So this is polyneuropathy and muscle wasting. And how about wet beriberi? This is going to present with high output cardiac failure and heart failure causes edema. And edema is kind of the reason it's called wet beriberi. It's very good. Let's talk about vitamin B2 now, riboflavin. Do you guys know where we get vitamin B2? 
Usually it's in dairy products. And what's the normal function of riboflavin? So it makes up the flavins, which are used as cofactors in oxidation reduction reactions. Think of a lot of the reactions that happen in the TCA cycle. And deficiency of riboflavin, it's going to be associated with chelosis uh, as well as corneal vascularization. The next vitamin we're going to talk about is a little bit bigger and a little bit more important. So let's pay attention to this one. Vitamin B3 or niacin. Where do we get niacin? Like where does it come from? It's seen in liver, milks, and grains. And it's actually derived from tryptophans, which are used to make some other hormones such as serotonin. Something important about niacin, it's not in the vegetable corn. And this is important because a lot of farmers who eat only corn will develop niacin deficiency. And what happens in niacin deficiency? What do we see? So we can see glossitis, similar to a lot of the other vitamin B deficiencies, but very severe deficiency is going to be associated with a specific condition called pellagra. What are the symptoms of pellagra? So for pellagra, I remember the four Ds, diarrhea, dementia, dermatitis, and it can eventually cause death. So the dermatitis that happens in niacin deficiency is kind of special. It's going to happen in like a collar shape around the neck. It's called the Casal necklace sometimes. And basically what we get is hyperpigmentation of the sun exposed areas. There's a few other times we can see niacin deficiency. One of them is heartnup disease. Do you guys know what heartnup disease is? So this is an autosomal recessive condition, and it's associated with a deficiency of tryptophan transporters in enterocytes as well as renal tubular cells. And if we're not getting enough tryptophan, we're not able to make niacin, and it can actually be associated with intermittent attacks of pellagra-like symptoms during childhood. Usually symptoms get better as patients age. Another time we see niacin deficiency is in malignant carcinoid syndrome. Can you think of why that would be? So as I briefly mentioned earlier, tryptophan is actually used to make serotonin. And in malignant carcinoid syndrome, you're making too much serotonin. And so your tryptophan supplies are actually depleted. And so in malignant carcinoid syndrome, you can also get niacin deficiency. And then sometimes... Um, niacin can be in excess. And what happens when it's in excess? You're going to get a condition called podagra, um, and you can get facial flushing, which is actually induced by prostaglandins. But sometimes niacin is used to treat um, hypercholesterolemia as well. And a side effect of niacin treatment is facial flushing, which is caused by prostaglycin. You can also get hyperglycemia. You can also get hyperuricemia. So that is niacin. Let's talk next about pantothenic acid or vitamin B5. Just briefly, what happens in vitamin B5 deficiency? You can get dermatitis, you can get hair loss or alopecia, adrenal insufficiency, as well as enteritis. Um, that's not a super big one, so that's all I'll say about B5. Let's move on to vitamin B6 or pyridoxine. Where do we get pyridoxine from in our diet? It comes from meat, eggs, egg yolk, um, as well as wheat. 
And what's the normal function of pyridoxine? So pyridoxine is a pretty big vitamin. Um, it is a cofactor in synthesis of a lot of things, including heme, niacin, histamine, a lot of neurotransmitters such as serotonin, epinephrine, norepinephrine, dopamine, GABA. And so you'll see pyridoxine come up a lot in biochemistry as a very important cofactor in a lot of different reactions. So what happens with deficiency of pyridoxine? So think about what, um, what vitamin B6 acts as a cofactor, um, what processes are involved. So it is involved in heme synthesis. And so if you can't make heme, you're going to get a lot of the products accumulated in the mitochondria. And that causes a sideroblastic anemia. And then the other thing you're going to see is that B6 makes a product called ceramide, which is seen in myelin. And so because you can't make that, you're going to get peripheral neuropathy. So B6 deficiency is associated with both peripheral neuropathy as well as sideroblastic anemia. And can you think of some drugs that cause pyridoxine deficiency? Because there's a few of them. So isoniazid, which is used to treat tuberculosis, is a pretty big one. And then also oral contraceptives, interestingly, can cause B6 deficiency. The last B vitamin I want to talk about is biotin, or vitamin B7. Do you guys know what B7 does? It acts as a cofactor for a lot of carboxylation reactions. And deficiency associated with biotin... So dermatitis, enteritis, as well as alopecia. And anyone know when you can get biotin deficiency? So it's pretty random, but excessive ingestion of raw egg whites. There's actually a protein in egg called avidin, which binds the biotin. Um, and then excessive consumption of raw egg whites. I'm not sure who's doing that, but that can cause biotin deficiency. Now, you'll see a lot of times in stores, like people will take biotin supplements or other supplements, and there's not a lot of research that it's helpful unless a person is deficient. So for example, biotin is thought to help with hair growth, but there's not a lot of evidence that it actually helps with hair growth unless a patient is truly deficient in biotin, in which case it's going to help. So a lot of times patients will ask about taking over-the-counter supplements, including a lot of the B vitamins. And that's kind of the answer that I give, that there's not any evidence that shows it's truly helpful, for example, biotin in promoting hair growth, unless it's truly deficient. The very last vitamin, congratulations if you're still listening and you've made it this far, the very last vitamin I want to talk about is vitamin C, or ascorbic acid. Where do we find vitamin C? We get it in a lot of fruits and vegetables. And what does vitamin C do? Like, what's its normal function? It actually helps us with iron absorption. So it's going to convert iron into the ferrous state, Fe2+, and that allows it to get absorbed in the intestines. And then it's also going to hydroxylate proline and lysine, which are important because they play a role in collagen synthesis. And that normal function of vitamin C kind of leads us into what happens in vitamin C deficiency. What condition do you get if you're deficient in vitamin C? Scurvy. 
So scurvy is basically a condition in which your collagen synthesis is impaired. And that makes sense because vitamin C is necessary for collagen synthesis. So symptoms of scurvy are basically collagen is broken everywhere. Your gums are swollen, you bruise a lot, a lot of petechiae, a lot of hemarthrosis, so bloody joints. You'll get anemia, poor wound healing. They get this interesting hair finding called corkscrew hair. Again, because the collagen is impaired in synthesis. And then what happens if we have a toxicity, like too much vitamin C? This can cause iron toxicity. Um, It's associated with nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, fatigue, and also a specific type of kidney stones, calcium oxalate kidney stones in excess vitamin C. That wraps up all the vitamins, and I guess the title is a little bit of a misnomer because there's really only one mineral I want to talk about. The only mineral I want to talk about is zinc um, because, believe it or not, it does show up on exams. What is the normal function of zinc? Zinc actually facilitates activity of hundreds of different enzymes, and one of the main ones that I remember is the transcription factor motif. Do you guys remember the zinc finger from RNA transcription? So the zinc finger is a transcription factor motif, and obviously it involves zinc. What happens in deficiency of zinc? You get some kind of classic symptoms. So one of them is delayed wound healing, and you can actually get this condition called acrodermatitis enteropathica which is diarrhea as well as a rash around the mouth and anus and loss of hair. Um, So really think about zinc as suppressing wound healing and it can cause rashes. And then another interesting one is dyskusia, which is distortion of taste, as well as anosmia. So you can't taste, you can't smell. It can also cause hypogonadism, which is associated with decreased adult hairs, And interestingly, it can also predispose to alcoholic cirrhosis. So the reason I spent some time talking about zinc is because it does kind of tend to show up on board exams and it's a good one to know. But that's really the only mineral I'm going to be talking about. So, you know, again, congratulations if you've stuck with this podcast episode and made it this far into the episode. Hopefully that was a helpful review. And I'm going to just ask some rapid fire questions right now to kind of test your memory about everything you've learned so far. So, just some rapid questions. What vitamin do we inject infants with on birth? Like, as soon as babies are born, what vitamin do we give them? Vitamin K. Very good. What vitamin do we give infants kind of as a supplementation with breast milk? Vitamin D. Now, if a patient has macrocytic megaloblastic anemia, What two deficiencies are you kind of thinking about? You're thinking about B12 and B9, cobalamin and folate. Very good. And then what lab test can we use to kind of distinguish them? You can test methylmalonic acid levels. So what if MMA level is high? What does that tell us? That points to B12 deficiency. And what if MMA level is normal? How about, what does that tell us? That points more to folate deficiency. What is the syndrome called that's associated with niacin deficiency? 
pellagra, very good. And remember the four Ds of pellagra, diarrhea, dementia, dermatitis, and death. And then what if a patient has both peripheral neuropathy and sideroblastic anemia? What deficiency did we talk about for peripheral neuropathy and sideroblastic anemia? Pyridoxine, and remember, you get that sideroblastic anemia because you need pyridoxine to synthesize heme. What condition is associated with impaired collagen synthesis? That would be scurvy, and that's a vitamin C deficiency. And then last one, what if you can't taste, can't smell, have delayed wound healing, have a rash around the mouth and anus? I'm thinking of zinc deficiency. Excellent job. And that wraps up our episode on vitamins and minerals. I think this is a great topic to review if you're taking a nutrition class in medical school. Um, and it also does tend to pop up a lot on the actual board exam as well. Thank you so much. If you've stuck along this far with the episode, thank you for listening. Um, please let me know if you found this episode useful. If there's any topic that I can cover um, that you're interested in hearing about, please let me know. And Always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, if you're finding errors in any of these episodes, please log on to spoonfulofsugar.org and you can actually post your comments under the episode um, or under the link for this specific episode. And then again, the contacts page on spoonfulofsugar.org is a great way to get in touch if you have a particular topic you'd like me to cover or if you're interested in contributing to the Spoonful of Sugar team and actually recording an episode yourself. Vitamins and minerals are a hard topic. There's definitely a lot of SOS moments associated with learning them. But remember that Spoonful of Sugar is always here to help the medicine go down. 